Well, good to be back with you guys again, and uh, nice to see some familiar faces visiting this morning. Welcome to the Harris's. We haven't done that already. Uh, quick reminder, we put together this little card, or we got this card for the for Joanne, our contact at OPC. She's been wonderful in, in supporting us as renters there, and uh, we just wanted to say thank you. We're going to send her a little gift this week and attach this card. If you haven't had a chance to sign this, please uh, just remember to sign this at the end of the service. Um, we just want to send that out this week. So um, we've been away for a bit. Uh, first week of July, we took our granddaughter Charlotte to uh, Explorer Camp at Joy Bible Camp. And uh, if you keep a prayer list, then could I ask you to put Charlotte on your list? Um, to my knowledge, we are the only gospel influence in her life. Uh, and it's important that all of us remember that, we, uh, that our families are often our first mission field, aren't they? Um, and probably our primary mission field. If you're a parent, um, your first responsibility is to faithfully live out your, um, your faith before your children and, uh, and to be faithful in declaring uh, the word of God and the truth of his gospel to the, your kids. You're not responsible for saving them. <laughs> That's a hard thing as a parent to sometimes uh, get in here. I don't know about, about you, but uh, I know I have struggled at times to wonder where I fell short when my kids did not seem to be living like I wanted them to. Uh, my desire in my heart for them and for what I knew was best for them does not necessarily equate to a response. Um, but I encourage you with this. Because we walked a long, long path, especially with our son. Prayed a long time. And I'll be honest, there were many times when I felt like, okay, I'm saying the words, but I'm really struggling to believe that you're actually going to be able to do anything in this situation, God. Keep praying. God doesn't work on our timetable. And this is true for your children. It's, it, it's true for your grandchildren if you have those. It's true for your nieces and nephews. I know some of you have, have sort of outer circle family members that you are, you're agonizing over, that, that there's a burden there for them. Keep praying. Keep praying. I'm so grateful that there were people who gave up several weeks of their summer to make something like that Explorer Camp possible. Uh, Charlotte heard the gospel clearly in song and in story and in memory verse. It was good for my heart to see her on stage with all those other kids singing the songs and doing all the actions. She knew the actions. She knew the songs. They haven't sunk in yet, but they're seeds, right? Seeds planted. Please pray that the Holy Spirit would cause those seeds to germinate and it would be in good soil. Imagine what could result. <laughs> her mom her grandparents, her uncles, aunts, her cousins. And there are times, and I'm not going to go into details, but there are times when I look and I just think, oh my goodness, Lord, how does this kid have a chance when I see some of the, the things going on, the brokenness that results from sin, and seeing like the full outworking of that in her life, the things that her little eyes have already seen at seven years old. But God is sovereign over all those things. That's the ripple effect, isn't it, of when somebody gets saved, of being born again? It is all of a sudden there's a change in that person's life, and now they have an inroad to sharing the gospel with other people who we might never get an opportunity to be in contact with, right? So that should excite us 
to regularly proclaim the gospel to whoever will listen because we don't know what God's going to do with that and we don't know the impact that's going to have. That parable that we talked about where the seed, unless it dies and falls into the ground, it's not going to germinate. It's not going to sprout up. But if it does, now it's going to bear fruit, right? And, and Jesus said like 30-fold, 50-fold, 100-fold. We don't know what the, res- the results are going to be. But we, we've got results like that in this very place, right? In, in our very congregation. The last two weeks of July were much-needed rest and recharging for Judy and I uh, as we camped at Kilbear Park in Perry Sound. I want to thank John and uh, Chris Godby and Jermaine just for making that possible by uh, covering the preaching here so that we had the opportunity to be away. Uh, I had, <laughs> And for those of you that, that sent little texts just to wish us a restful time. That, that meant a lot. It was an encouragement. And I had no idea how tired I was. Uh, I had multiple mornings where I slept till 9 a.m. That is unheard of. And I'm back home and I'm up again at 6.15. I don't know what that is. That's just weird. But anyway. So now it's Chris and Beth's turn. Pray for them as they travel. Um, and in fact, I would encourage you to regularly pray for us all as pastors. Um, we need your prayers. We need your encouragement. We're just... We're just men, too. We are not superheroes of the faith. Um, we're just guys, and sometimes we struggle, and sometimes we're tired, and sometimes we're cranky. Um, if you doubt that, you can ask my wife. She will tell you. Now here we are, first official week gathering as a church at St. James. Jermaine shared with me something profound that uh, John, our resident poet, had said to him. I hope I re- accurately relay it to you. And he said this. When we were at David Bouchard, we were a church. When we met in houses, we were a family. But now that we're here at St. James, it kind of feels like we are a family building a home. I don't know if that resonates with you. I hope that you feel a little bit of that too. I don't know what God's going to do. Uh, I don't know that God is going to miraculously give us this place. Um, I would love that story. I, I want that story. I don't know about you, but like... There's a part of me that just says, yes, I would love to have that testimony. But if God doesn't do that, God's got something else in mind. And I'm totally okay to trust him with whatever that might be. Are you? Are you good with that? Look at how I just, we've, we've had opportunity to look back a bit over the, the years. And I just marvel at how God has been faithful to us over the years, all the different places that we have been. And as Jermaine said, right, those were places. We're the church. So in one sense, the place doesn't matter. Oh, it's certainly nice when you've got a place. But the reality is that when we gather, we are the church. So let's be the church, not just here, not just Sunday mornings, But every day of the week, let us be the church in the world, proclaiming the light of the gospel to the lost. Let's let's fill these pews. We got lots to fill. Let's do it. All right, let's see what we can do and what God's going to do with simply our faithful obedience. Last week, Jermaine took us through the last few verses of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He highlighted for us the scriptural truth that we have been saved by love for love. In other words, our salvation is the outworking of the extravagant love that God has for us as sinners. 
And since God's definition of love is not a fuzzy feeling, but it's an intentional action for the benefit of the object of his love, Paul writes this in Galatians 4, 4 4-7, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might be saved. No, it's more than that. So that we might receive adoption as sons, which was a common term for children. And because you are children, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. That means daddy, father. We have a completely different relationship with him because of his extravagant love poured out to us. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It is a pretty remarkable love that rescues slaves. It is a mind-blowing, next-level, extravagant love that rescues slaves and then adopts them as children and heirs. That's the kind of love we are recipients of. That's the kind of love we need to display to a world that's lost and broken and hurting. And his purpose in doing so is so that we as his children might reflect that same love, might mimic it in our dealings with each other and with the lost in this world. Verse 22 instructs us, or instructed us, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. God saved us by love, for love. Along with that, our motivation comes from the word. Verse 23 that Jermaine read tells us, since you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. So the word of God is so much more than our instruction manual, as as it were. Maybe you've heard that little acronym, right? Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. It's cute, it's pithy but I feel like it's limiting. There's so much more in here than just basic instructions. So much more, and we're going to talk about that today. It reveals the heart of God to us as well, so that we come to know him better as we obey. It doesn't just tell us what to do, but how to do it and why we do it. And that brings us to today's passage. I've entitled our sermon, Love the Word. So if you would, please, if you haven't already, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is just four books before Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're just going to read the first three verses. It reads as follows. So, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a needy people. (laughs) That's not a weakness. It's not to our shame. It's an acknowledgement of reality, God. We are needy, and you, you are holy. So knowing how we are made, knowing our weakness, you first gave your son as our redeemer and savior. But on top of that, you've given us your spirit. You left us your word in which you have incredible things to say to us in it. You reveal your heart 
and your will and your character, most clearly in the person of your son, which is why Peter writes, his divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. And because your spirit takes your word and makes you known to us, God, help us to grow in our love for your word as we study and consider today's passage. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. All right, let's, let's keep this thought at the forefront. And if you're following along on the notes, then there are some blanks here that you can follow along with. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to reveal the heart and will of God to the children of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to reveal the heart and will of God to the children of God. Okay, we're going to look at this in uh, four breakdown portions. Um, and I, I uh, in part of my study, I was taking a look at uh, John MacArthur's commentary. I really liked his outline, so I borrowed or modified his outline. I'm working with that. Number one, eliminate your sins. Eliminate your sins. Sorry, there we go. Verse one of First Peter two reads: So. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us that man's chief end is to, do we remember? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Does that sound funny? Have you ever had someone up at the pulpit saying to you, your chief end is to enjoy God? Glorify him? Absolutely, yes. Enjoy him? I don't know. I don't know that that's something that we regularly communicate. But isn't that interesting? Think about yourself as an individual. Do you want someone to enjoy your company? Or just tolerate you? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Here's the problem, though. God is holy and sinless, and we are not. So how can we, sinful, rebellious, idolizers of ourselves, how can we glorify God when everything we are and everything we do is contaminated by sin? Well, the answer is found in the gospel, as I am sure that we know. We can't glorify God not in our own righteousness, which is non-existent, quite frankly. But praise God, the gospel tells us that when we're saved, we are clothed in whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness, yeah. In Isaiah 61.10, Isaiah wrote, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. Why? My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Now, here's the thing. Isaiah doesn't tell us how this is possible. Old Testament believers were often left to simply trust that God would somehow do so and to wonder at the method that he was going to use. But the New Testament clarifies how this is possible for a thrice holy God to declare a wicked sinner like me, deserving of eternal death, to be righteous. To the Philippian church, Paul wrote, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Did I put these up here? Why, yes, I did. All right, I forgot to leave myself a note. All right, 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes how? Through faith. Ah, that's how it happens. Through faith, still mysterious to a certain degree. How is it that I simply have faith in him and I'm declared righteous? Through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we've got some more illumination, at least. And to the Corinthian church, he declared that for our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Even more hallucination, uh, illumination. All right? So we place our faith in him. What does God do? Well, there's a payment that has to be made for the offense, for the crime. And the punishment, instead of falling on us, goes to Jesus. He serves the punishment. We receive the freedom as a consequence. The gospel illuminates the truth that it is repentance from our sins and faith in Christ that results in our sin being transferred to Jesus' account where he paid the debt in full at Calvary. And his perfect righteousness being transferred to our account. In this perfect righteousness, in this perfect righteousness, we can glorify him. And that is most clearly done when we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, choose to eliminate sin in our lives. Is that amazing? God knows our weakness. Remember that. God knows your weakness. So the only one who's surprised when you're declaring it is often you. <laughs> All right? God already knows it. He wants us to be aware of it and come to him acknowledging it. And the first weakness that he took care of was our unrighteousness. He resolved that problem. We are now righteous in him. The, I know you don't feel it. I know I don't feel it many days. I don't feel very righteous, certainly not perfectly righteous, but our status, our positional situation is that we are declared perfectly righteous in Christ. And because of that righteousness, we also have his power in us. As Jeremy Camp writes, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That kind of power is in us. In the Greek, it's dunamos, which is the word that we translate as dynamite. Boom, baby. That kind of power is in us. It's explosive power. And that power allows us the ability to say no to sin. Because prior to that, in our unrighteousness, we couldn't even. Our whole nature is contaminated with sin. And we can't even not obey our sin nature. That was a double negative, but you know what I mean. We must obey our sin nature in our unrighteousness. But because of Christ's righteousness, we now have the power to say no. You have the power to say no to sin in your life. That is startling and remarkable. Paul goes on to say, to the believers in Rome, in Romans 6.13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, why would Paul tell the believers in Rome that they should do this if it's impossible for them to do so? That would be cruel for him to say, you need to say no. You need to present the members of your body, the parts of your body, all of it, your mind, your heart, your desires, your will. You need to present it as as an instrument of righteousness. If that was impossible to do so, that would be so discouraging for those new believers in Rome, constantly falling on their face. But he says it because it's possible in the power of the Holy Spirit through the righteousness that we've been given in Christ. That's remarkable. And now Peter tells the believers here, put away all of these things. Let's take a look. Here, Peter instructs on a few things that the believers should eliminate from their lives. This is not an exhaustive list by any stretch, but it covers some things here that maybe don't show up in other portions of Scripture. All right? Maybe these are specific issues in the church that he wrote to. Malice was the first one. I know um, Jermaine has elaborated a little bit on this last week already. Malice means wrongful intentions. We're going to do a comparison in just a moment, and you'll see that in your notes. But malice means wrongful intentions. It's actually a legal term, which refers to one party's intention to do injury to another person. It is often used in Scripture of evil or wickedness to someone else's harm. Second thing he mentions is deceit. This refers to an act or a statement that misleads, that hides the truth, or that promotes an idea or belief that isn't true. Um, If I were to say to you, you know, well, when I was up at 6 o'clock this morning doing my devotions, that would give you an idea in your head. Oh, Mike got up at 6 a.m. this morning doing his devotions. Now, if I took two minutes to quickly read over the passage that I was going to be preaching on now, and then I went on to go and have my breakfast and my shower and stuff. But I'm telling you, I got up this morning to do devotions. Notice how there's a tiny little kernel of truth in that. I was reading God's Word. Does that constitute as devotional? Sure, in, in context, right? And the time frame is not the essential component. But there's a misleading there. There's a picture that's painted for you. You, you have an idea that's different than reality was. And if I am saying that with intent, that's what deceit is. Yes, it's lying, but it can also be twisting, extorting, exaggerating the truth to portray a picture, usually to my betterment or to your detriment or a little bit of both. Yeah? Hypocrisy. It's the practice of pretending to be what one is not or to believe what one does not. I think we're all pretty clear on what hypocrisy is. It went way back to the Greek actors who used to put on a mask. It was that term, the idea of putting on a mask to portray a certain thing. And that's actually, in a figurative sense, what we do, right? It actually entered the English language around 1200 AD. That's how old that word is. And this was the meaning then. It's really interesting. The meaning was the sin, so it was attached to sin, the sin of pretending toward virtue or goodness. So that's like that example I just gave to you, right? That it was hypocritical in a sense as well to put on that I am so virtuous that I got up so early and spent time, blah, 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 right? Those kinds of things. And we can do that, can't we? 
it's actually fairly easy to slip into stuff like that. Envy was the fourth one, an emotion which occurs when a person lacks somebody else's skill, quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it or wishes that the other lacked it. Notice how every single one of these has some kind of uh, part in it that is to the detriment of another. Lastly, slander, any form of communication that can injure another's another person's reputation, right? We can directly, in a statement, talk them down, right? Um, but we can also attack, Jermaine and I were talking about this but this past week as we were hanging out, uh, we can talk about caricaturing a person or stereotyping a person. They're always like this. Nobody's always like that, right? We have to be careful about words. They never, they always you have to be very careful about those. Uh, be careful about them in your marriage. Be careful about them when you're talking about, you know, with other people, right? Because it can be an easy trap to get into, and it's, it's extremely discouraging. Lends to this slander. Every one of these sins that Peter mentions is to the detriment of someone else. There is always some form of harm to another person. Now, Jermaine brought out last week that our goal ought to be a sincere, earnest, what? Love for one another. These sins that Peter mentions here are the exact opposite of what sincere, earnest love should look like. So in your notes, I've got this little comparison here and a couple of blanks that you might want to fill in as we go. It looks like this. Malice seeks another's hurt. Earnest love seeks another's good. Deceit seeks to mislead another. Earnest love gently tells another the truth. Hypocrisy pretends to be someone they're not. Earnest love is genuine and sincere. Envy is resentful of another's good. Earnest love rejoices together with another. Slander speaks hurtfully about another. Earnest love encourages and blesses. There's the contrast. All of these things that Peter's saying, don't be this, he can so easily say, in earnest love, we are the exact opposite. Now, if you take just a moment and you look at all of the ones that are in yellow there, all the ones that describe earnest love, who do they remind you of? Who's like that? This is a Sunday school question, right? <laughs> Where we all know the answer. All right, the answer is Jesus, right? Yeah, okay. But, but really... Think about it. When you read, and we just finished a few years of studying the Gospel of Matthew, did we not see that Jesus sought another's good consistently? Jesus gently told people the truth. Jesus was genuine and sincere. Jesus rejoiced together with others. Jesus showed love that encouraged and blessed. Don't we want to be like that? Don't we want to be like Jesus? God's word instructs us to put away all these things that are the antithesis, that are the complete opposite of Jesus, so that we look and behave like children of God. We want to be like our dad. We want to live that way. We want to talk that way. We want to act and respond that way. 
Let's be diligent through the power of the Spirit to put away sin in our lives so that we better reflect the character of our Heavenly Father and of the Savior who loves us. Amen? Secondly, admit your needs. That's the first part of verse 2. And it reads like this. It's a challenge. It's an instruction. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Ever seen a newborn infant feed? talking to some people who are like, uh, yeah, every day, multiple times. I'm sure we've all heard a hungry baby cry, right? It's, uh, it's, I want what I want, and I want it now. Yes? Yeah. I remember when our babies were that little because, well, because we had adopted, our children were bottle-fed, and so I could actually participate, which was really cool. I am so grateful for those moments. Uh, I was the uh, early morning guy. Uh, I'm pretty useless after about nine o'clock at night. And, uh, and so my wife would stay up. I'd go to bed at nine. She'd stay up to 11, do a last feeding, and then put the baby down, and then uh, come to bed. And at 5 a.m., when they were wailing because they had a wet diaper and needed another bottle, I was the one who got up at five, and then she could sleep into seven, and we were both kind of roughly-ish getting seven hours, right? So there were many, many, many mornings, even years after they were newborns, that I can remember (laughs) lying on the side of my face on the carpet in the den, building like a Tim Hortons drive-thru out of Lego so that my kids could run Hot Wheels cars through because they were up very, very early and my wife was not. So that cry wakes you, off you go. They need a dry diaper and then they need their bottle and we got to get that in fast, right? They wail out of desperation to be fed. It is all they want. And then when that milk is provided, they just latch on and go hard, sucking it back like it was oxygen for a drowning man. Their response is sometimes quite comical, yes? I would chuckle and say, like, easy there, buddy. Slow down. I got you. And then they drink until they quite literally fell asleep again at the bottle, the nipple slipping out of their mouths, little trickle of milk going down the corner of their mouth. Yes? Yeah? They're sweet memories, aren't they? They are. It's a tender time. That's the analogy Peter's drawing on. Let's connect that now to the word of God. He is telling us, love the word, brothers and sisters. Long for it desperately like that infant longs for the breast or the bottle. Latch on and don't let go until you are completely satisfied and satiated with it. Man, consider that picture in your head for just a moment. It's a really interesting image, isn't it? Here's a question. Would you say that you long for God's word at this moment the way an infant longs for milk? Does all else just have to wait until you get your fill of the word? Is that how it is for you? Is this an accurate description of your life daily? I would hazard a guess that it's not, sad to say. And that isn't a judgment as much as it is a confession and an acknowledgement. Along with you, I have to admit that that would not be an honest description of my longing for the word all the time either. Though it ought to be. Why do you think that is? Why is reading God's word spiritual discipline 
and not like a baby latching onto that bottle and going, right? Just, just, I got to have it and I got to have it now. Take a moment to ask yourself, to ponder this. Why don't I long for God's word like I ought to? I'm going to give you two reasons why I think so, because I'm preaching, I get to do that. Um, Why we don't long for God's word like that. Number one, we don't think we're that needy. We don't think we're that needy. As ridiculous as it is in hindsight, when the pandemic hit, what disappeared rapidly in stores? First thing. Toilet paper. Yes. Like, what? All right. Why? Because people recognized they needed it. And they were desperately afraid that they would run out. Right? It's pretty funny in retrospect. I, I, was, I was so tempted to get the 2020 Christmas tree ornament that was toilet paper rolls. <laughs> it was, anyway, sorry, I'll stop. But, okay, I don't believe we see ourselves as that desperately needy for God's word. We're okay without it. And here's why. The reason we believe we can get through our day or our week without reading God's word is because we see it simply as informative rather than transformative. Let me read that again. The reason we believe we can get through our day or our week without reading God's word is because we see it as simply informative rather than transformative. If we only see it as information, well, shoot, we can get so much information all over the place. There's way more information available to us than we could possibly ever consume in a lifetime of consuming information. But the Bible is not simply somebody's kind advice to you. The Bible is a dangerous book because when we read it, it transforms us. It changes us. As a parent... Would you ever see yourself saying, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to save myself a lot of time and hassle. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prepare 25 bottles of milk on Saturday and feed them to my baby all at once. There, done for the week. Score, right? I'm a rock star. That'll never work. Because the need is a multiple times a day need. Similarly, our need for God's word is not just something that can be crammed in at a Sunday service. And then we're good. Like feeding, it's something that must be done regularly. That's why Jesus, when he taught the disciples to pray, he said, give us this day our what? Daily bread. Not our bread for the week. Our daily bread. Are you willing to recognize and acknowledge that your daily need of time, that your need of time is daily in God's word? You need it daily. In the Old Testament, there was the picture of the people of Israel going through the wilderness. And God provided manna for them. And he gave them specific instructions. He said, collect only what you need for today. Don't collect for multiple days. There were people who were like, you know what, I'm smarter than God. I got this. I'm going to save time and hassle. And they went out and they collected more than for the day. And the next morning when they got up, it was rotting and there were worms crawling all through it. And it was disgusting. 
God was teaching them a lesson. He was giving them a completely different mindset. He was saying, no, I got a purpose to my commands. There's a reason for what I'm saying. You need to do this, and you need to do it daily. Now, there was going to be a conflict, right? The Sabbath. Because God had also said, you're going to rest one day. So on that day, he allowed, on the day before, he allowed people to collect for two days so that they could honor his other commands. That was the only exception. What's the message there? We need to go back to him daily. Yeah. It is humbling to admit that we need God. It is humbling to admit we are needy, but it's only a problem for us. I would suggest it might be our pride. I know it's certainly mine. God already knows it. And in his great grace, he's already made provision for it. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 says this. It is a beautiful verse. You might want to note it down. Psalm 103, 13 and 14, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. He knows your frame. He remembers that you are dust. Do you know who forgets? You do. God doesn't forget. You forget. I forget. We forget that we are dust. And we're like, I got this. Accept the truth that you are needy. So that was the first thing. Sorry. We don't think that we're needy. And secondly, we're not hungry because we've been snacking. Right? You got your kids, right? It's coming up on dinner time. And you're like, dinner! And they're like, I'm not hungry. Why? Well, because they've been into the bear paws and the potato chips and the freezies and everything else. They've been snacking all day. And they're not hungry for supper. And you know that you've put together a good meal, right? There's some, maybe some meat and some vegetables and some potatoes or something or other. I don't know what your suppers look like. But you've got something that's nutritious, something that is, you know, is going to is going to hit sort of those food groups and is going to give them the energy they need and the the nutrients they need for growth or whatever it is. And they're like, yeah, no, I'm good because I just like mowed down on that Costco-sized back of Chicago mix, right? And you're like, right? The culture offers a relentless source of what John MacArthur calls informational junk food. So even though we feel full, we are spiritually malnourished sickly and weak. If our feeding, uh, allegorically speaking, comes from this, scrolling endlessly through whatever, right? Um, then we're going to feel full, and especially if we're back to that, oh, well, I only see the Bible as informative anyway. I'm getting lots of information here. It corrupts the way that we think and the way that we perceive things, because it has an influence. It's not neutral. And we need to recognize that as well. Even though we feel full, we're spiritually malnourished. Peter calls God's word pure milk. It's wholesome, nourishing. It supports healthy spiritual development. Parents who love their kids feed them a regular diet of healthy and nutritious food. Your heavenly father loves you far more and has provided a regular diet of healthy and nutritious spiritual food. Love the pure milk of the word. 
All right, thirdly, pursue your growth. Pursue your growth. Second part of verse 2. Most of us have probably heard this advertisement. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. Yep. All right. And sounds like fun, especially when you're walking through the Nerf aisle. But the truth is that if your child is not growing up, you know something's wrong, and you head immediately to the doctor. Failure to thrive, right? The goal of healthy nourishment is healthy growth. The second half of verse 2 makes this claim that by it you may grow up into salvation. The goal of healthy spiritual nourishment is healthy spiritual growth as well. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul exhorts the believers, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice that the spiritual growth affects not only what we do, but what we desire. Paul says that God works in us to affect not only our work, but our will. Isn't that cool? Like, the word of God is transformative. It's changing even the things that you start to love. How does he do it? He does it. How does God do it? I'm talking to you. He does it through his word. That's how he changes our desire. When I was a young man, I'd go to McDonald's. That was back in the day when they actually changed the numbers on the board. Now it just says billions and billions served, but you could actually see the numbers change. I know, I'm that old. But anyway, we'd get burgers and fries and the rest, and then once Judy and I got married uh, and had two kids, well, we just frankly didn't have the money to do that regularly. Uh, And then we noticed something interesting. Because we weren't eating that fast food regularly, we lost our desire for it. When we did go out and eat it, it just didn't taste good anymore. It was too salty. Our kids would say, meh, don't want to go to McDonald's. Really? Like, I thought that would be a big treat. They're like, no, don't really like it. A regular diet of God's word, with the satisfaction and the fulfillment that it brings, will have you discovering that the spiritual junk food of this world just doesn't satisfy now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not knocking junk food, all right? I have my moments too. It's just not McDonald's. That's why I use that example. If you love McDonald's, go. Grand Big Mac, whatever. It's on you. More than that, if you are serious about healthy growth, you are going to be careful and intentional about what you put in your body. I didn't get a chance to interview John, but I know that he has trained for marathons. And you can't just eat anything you want in those periods, can you? I'm not saying, do you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <sighs> Confession is good for the soul. Anyway, you're going to be careful and intentional about what you put in your body. Olympic athletes don't just eat any old calories. They are careful to avoid what doesn't provide healthy and intentional, sorry, what doesn't provide healthy growth, and they're intentional to eat what will propel them to their growth goals. All right? I have some neighbors that are huge into bodybuilding, and they are... Like, they're crazy intense about what they eat and don't eat. Brothers and sisters, as God's own children, we ought to desire healthy spiritual growth. God saw our desperate situation headed towards a lost eternity, and he sent his son, his only son, to die in our place so that he could save, forgive, and redeem us. It is ridiculous to then think that we would toss back an uncaring, eh, whatever, 
when God wants us to grow spiritually into the image of the son of his love, the one he gave for us. It goes back to what I said before. The reason we believe we can get through our day or our week without reading God's word is because we see it simply as informative rather than transformative. Have we forgotten we're at war? Sometimes we get complacent. I get complacent. I have to remind myself. It's easier to remind myself these days than it was when I was 15. The world is different. The culture looked pretty much the same. It was pretty homogeneous all around, all very similar. People had, generally speaking, the same values. Like, my neighbor would yell at me if I was doing something that was wrong. And my parents were okay with that because we all had the same values. We didn't all go to the same church. Some of us didn't go to church at all. But we all pretty much had the same values. That has changed dramatically. Amen? Yeah. Look around us. Is the culture at enmity with us now? One of the great benefits of persecution, yes, I said that, one of the great benefits of persecution is that it helps to dispel the illusion that everything's okay. Everything is not okay, brothers and sisters. Satan, the prince of this world, has been actively at work subverting the culture so that it no longer even tolerates a biblical worldview but openly hates it and seeks to destroy every vestige of it everywhere. You think you're going to stand in the face of that alone? Not without supernatural power and wisdom, you're not. And where is that power and wisdom found? Right here in the pages of God's word. It is there, brothers and sisters. Let's get serious about studying and knowing God's word so that we can know the God of the word. It's not informational or informative. It's transformative. As we come to know more of him, more of his character, more of his plan, more of his love, and more of his holiness, then we will grow to become more and more like him. Let's get serious about pursuing our growth. And lastly, consider your blessings. Verse 3. In verse 3, Peter makes this interesting rhetorical statement. You can almost hear a hint of sarcasm in it. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It begs a question, doesn't it? The question is this. Have you? Have you tasted? And have you found him to be good? I had the significant blessing to grow up in a Christian home where my parents strove to love the Lord and love each other the way God commanded them to and where they consistently taught me through their words and actions the truths of the gospel. As I look into families, other families that don't have that kind of influence, I see the damage and the destruction that's happening in those families. I'm sure you can look around in your own neighborhoods and families that you're connected with, and you see the, the hurt and the brokenness that's there because the influence, the, the purifying, holy influence of God's word is not prevalent there. <laughs> the older I get, the greater is my appreciation for that great grace from God. That was a gracious gift from God to put me in that home. Throughout my entire life, and I'm now 58, I have consistently and without fail found God to be good 
in every single instance where I have tasted. He has never failed to be merciful, never failed to be loving, never failed to be just, never failed to be faithful, even when I have failed in all of those areas multiple times. Can I get an amen? Yeah, yeah. I I pray that is your faithful testimony. (laughs) God is that one person that you can say, you never or you always, because he does. He cannot go against his character. I have tasted and I have found the Lord to be good without fail. Have you? Consider your own life. Have you considered, have you tallied the many blessings you have, starting with your salvation and your forgiveness? If you can't look back and find any time at all when the Lord has been good to you, then I would suggest that you haven't really tasted And by that, I mean this. When Peter uses the phrase tasted, it's really a metaphor for trusted. You typically won't taste food you don't trust. You know, or you won't know that that pew that you're sitting in right now will hold you until you trust it enough to rest your weight on it. You have to taste to find out something's good. You won't know the sweetness of loving someone for a lifetime until you make yourself vulnerable enough to let them in. You have to taste to find that it's good. On Saturday, Judy and I will be married 34 years. 34 years, that's like such a big number. Old people say stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, two? Praise God, you gotta pass two to get to 34, right? And, and, uh, and I'm being completely serious. And can we add the amen that it's by the grace of God that we've gotten to where we are? Amen. Amen. There is, honestly, there is no reason I should be celebrating a 34th anniversary this Saturday, except for the grace of God coming in and smacking me up the side of the head with a two by four because I needed it. Like, I'm dead honest with you. And, and I'm sure if Judy were standing here beside me, well, for one, she'd be really embarrassed because she doesn't like to stand up here. But um, she would say, too, you know, God had to do a work in my life, too. You've got two sinners who are trying to make a life together. And they're struggling both against their own sin nature. It's hard enough when you've got to do that on your own. It's a whole new level when you're doing that together with somebody else. Amen? God is good, though. He's so good. So uh, Peter is saying, you got to taste first. When you taste the Lord, you will find, you will find that he is good. There is a risk, always. We went to the farmer's market with Charlotte yesterday and bought some apricots. So I'm telling her a story about how as a kid, um, like 10 or 12 years old, we were in Turkey uh, at the time, we got invited to somebody's mansion in the mountains or whatever it is. I don't know. And we're like, we're just boys and we don't care. And it was a massive apricot orchard. And we sat on these stone walls and we ate way too many apricots. And then the guy showed us how you could take the seed out of the apricot and with a stone, you could break it open. And there is a, a pit inside that, that, that stone. And it looks like an almond. And you can eat it. And like we sat there the whole afternoon after eating all those Apricots, we ate almonds. I don't remember what the digestive effect was afterwards. We were 10. We didn't care. But I said this to Charlotte. So, of course, she was like, oh, can we try that? 
Sure. So she eats her apricot. We go home. We get the hammer out. We break open the stone. And there's the almond sitting right inside there, just like I said. It's not an almond, but it looks like one. And, uh, and Judy said, oh, really? I want to try that. She took a bit. Oh, my goodness. It was extremely bitter. Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. So that happens sometimes, doesn't it? You got to try it. Peter, however, with confidence states to the believers, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And there's no doubt in his mind that the response from the people would be an emphatic, absolutely, absolutely. This now directs us back. If you have indeed already tasted that the Lord is good, then why would you not trust that his word is good for you and necessary for your spiritual growth? Why wouldn't you long for more of that goodness? Brothers and sisters, the more we remind ourselves of the goodness of the Lord, the more we will long for that goodness. That's why corporate worship, like we're doing together today, is so important. We come together and we remind ourselves and each other of the goodness of God's salvation in the past, his sustaining presence and power in the present, and the glorious future that awaits us with him for eternity. It is essential to our healthy well-being. But we are fighting an uphill battle because our very flesh deceives us into thinking that we know better than God, that we don't really need him or his wise counsel. We've got this. Church, we need a savior to save us from us. That's what we need. We need a saving grace every single day just to overcome the flesh in which we're housed while our new nature longs to be more like Christ. Let's heed God's word as spoken through Peter in this epistle. The word keeps us on track, recalibrates us when we get out of alignment with God and his way, and gently washes us clean of the dirt of this journey through a sin-sick world. Let's echo the words of David the psalmist, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that in your great grace, you gave us your word in written form. If we think back through history, there were men that recognized the importance, the significance, the extreme value of this word to the believer. And they gave their lives to make sure it was available to us all. God, we must confess with shame that many of us have probably multiple versions of the written word in our homes, on our bookshelves, or wherever we keep them. Almost every one of us can access a digital version or versions. And often, Father, we don't value it like we should. God, give us a renewed appreciation for your word. Help us to love it. Help us to long for it, as Peter says, like a newborn babe, craving that pure milk of the word. Until the time comes when we are in the presence of the word of God the Son of his love, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read it, we pray your Holy Spirit would just clarify what we read in our minds so that we would come to know you more. And then, in fact, it would be transformative. It would change us so that we'd be more and more like the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. 
give you thanks for this place and these people, for the freedom we still enjoy to proclaim your transformative word to our hearts. And we'll give you all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.